0: What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today?
1: You're not interested in armed? No.
0: Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a
1: conversation.
0: From Chicago, this is film spotting. I'm Josh
2: Larson, and I'm Adam Kempinar.
1: Say green. Green. green, green. Did you get that? That's good. Do
2: you want to grab one with me?
1: I'm Ant-Man. They're Hulk fans. They don't know Ant-Man. Nobody does. does. As if anyone
2: would pass up a chance at a selfie with Paul Rudd. Maybe not the only thing wrong with that scene from Avengers Endgame. I really like that scene. Fair enough. Endgame, the year's big winner at the box office so far, but is Marvel's decade capping epic also one of the best films of the year so far? This week on the show, we'll share our top five. It's all ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting and welcome back, Josh, from The Family Vacation Your Trip to LA.
0: Yeah, the West Coast treated me just fine. I I did have to come back to Chicago for summer temperatures. Though. Right. A little cool, a little cool out there.
2: Yeah, that happens in L.A. We've got a lot to talk about. Last week's Toy Story show with Griffin Newman, we argued with you in your absence about the ending of Toy Story 4. Now I know how Sam feels when we pick apart his letterbox reviews <laughs> uh-huh. without giving him a chance <laughs> exactly. to do Exactly, yeah. We also need to talk to you, of course, about that L.A. trip, your meetup with Film Spotting listeners, and that credit card bill.
0: Well, it was it was big, but let me say this, very responsible group, more people than Seattle, lower bill.
2: Lower bill. Yeah. My sense is, Josh, looking at your social media and how the meetup went, is that nobody has hit L.A. with such force since maybe Elton John at the Troubadour. <laughs> I wouldn't know. <laughs> I'm going to have to take your word for it. We'll also hear listener picks for the best film of 2019 so far, but we're going to get the first crack at it. Josh, how easy or difficult was it to form this list?
0: I don't know if it was easy or difficult, but it was a little weird. This year has been different in that I could give you a top 10 right now I'd be happy with, but just about all 10 of those titles... Are in flux. There's nothing that has just grabbed a hold of me. And I can confirm to you, I know no matter what happens in the next six months, this title or two are going to be on my top 10 list and pretty high up. So, for example, last time this year, I already had Isle of Dogs and First Reformed pretty much locks, both of those. And we'll get to five titles that I really like. I think people, if they haven't seen them already, need to prioritize them to get a sense of what the movie year, what 2019 is like. But Things are going to shift, more years than most, things are going to shift while the aircraft is in motion. We'll Mm -hmm. see where things fall at the end of the year. Give me a little leeway, I guess is what I'm saying, for maybe this number one pick, surprisingly, maybe falling to the bottom of my top 10 list when the year ends.
2: Yeah, I don't think anybody out there will hold you to this. I certainly won't because I'm in a very similar position. Had a clear number one, and right now, of course, it would make sense for me to expect that number one to be on my top ten list at the end of the year. But after that, I had seven films vying for the last four spots. I felt mostly the same about those seven movies, really could do them in any order. And ultimately, I did decide to use as a guide how these films really demand scrutiny and encourage conversation. Films that make you really wrestle with the art versus enjoying purely as entertainment, which isn't to say you can't or I didn't enjoy them as entertainment. I certainly did. But even trying to use that helpful guide, I realized that the other three movies that I left on the outside looking in also fit that criteria. So it was a little difficult. There's really only one film out of the eight that I considered that doesn't almost demand dialogue or force you to ask questions. So, again, a little bit of a running theme throughout my picks. And I'm a little bit worried, too, that not only are we approaching our list similarly, I wonder if we have three or so titles in common this year. That might be the case. I think... You know, we probably had two
0: last year. I think for sure the two I mentioned. I think Isle of Dogs yeah. was at that point on your top five and First Reform. So it happens, um, but we'll we'll hash out our differences on these, particularly because I agree. A couple of these are ones you do have to wrestle with, and people
2: come away with having very different interpretations. Mm-hmm. Of,
0: so, and I'm not talking about Toy Story
2: Four. Well. That's one of my honorable mentions. So, yes, it does fit the bill. Not going to make your list and, as I just said, not quite going to make my top five. What is your number five, Josh? My number
0: five is Diane. This is one we didn't talk about on the show. And here comes the sales pitch. It's a small, depressing movie that left me pretty wrecked. But... I'm still going to recommend it. I'm going to encourage listeners who haven't seen it to track it down. It focuses on a 60-something widow, Diane, of the title played by Mary Kay Place. And this is just brutally honest about the losses that can define that stage of life, particularly for someone like Diane. She spends her days visiting family, visiting friends, all of whom are in various states of real need or loneliness, health issues, things of that sort. This is the fiction debut for critic and documentarian Kent Jones, and he just seems intent on detailing the personal burden of care on the caregiver. That's what we're immersed in here. Diane is sitting with people in the shittiest moments of their lives, and one detail I noticed is that in a lot of the scenes, she doesn't even bother to remove her coat because she knows she has to move on to go to someone else's house whose life is in an even shittier position. This Hmm. is just her day.
2: That's just me at any party I go to.
0: <laughs> That's why you leave your coat on?
2: Absolutely. Okay.
0: I'll remember that. No miracles happen in this movie. There are no personal breakthroughs. Spoiler alert. People keep leaving her. Death comes. Sales pitch gets better, right? Wow. <laughs> it's bleak, but you have to admire the commitment that Jones has to this portrait. And there is just enough of a transcendental touch to keep this from drowning in its misery. So there are things like time-lapse photography we suddenly get. Blurred focus comes into play in a couple instances. And all of this transports Diane outside of her drab routine or her draining routine, I should probably say, and into this realm that melds her memories with, I guess you could call them spiritual visions. And and that's maybe one of the questions the movie does pose. This is another one that's worth wrestling with because – whether or not you regard these transcendental touches as positive, so as signs of hope. And I think that's really up for debate when it comes to the movie's ending. There is no denying that overall this is just a really bracing movie. Uh, It focuses on someone, again, in a stage of life that the movies often ignore. So this is, uh, in a lot of ways, familiar, but not always familiar on movie screens. So Diane is now... Streaming. Also, I think it's in a few select theaters. Oh man, if I knew it was streaming, I would have fit it in because it it was number one on my list. Yeah, it might have been in the last week or so. Okay. Um, I just checked today to see and it is available. So yeah, give it a shot. Um, Stick with it. I think you'll be glad you did.
1: Brian, look at me. You need to go back to the clinic. I just. I just need you to trust me. Please. okay thank you okay but take a shower and get cleaned up i will and your clothes are in there on that chair okay and please take care of yourself please i will
2: a note For listeners who may be curious about Kent Jones's work, he appeared on the show. I interviewed him back in December 2015 to talk about his movie Hitchcock Truffaut, and we shared on that show appropriately our top five film books. So you can find that in the Film Spotting archive if you are curious. It's funny, a lot of what you said about Diane actually applies to my number five, despite the fact that they couldn't be more different, including the reading of the ending, including the bleakness, including the use of the word transcendental. I think I used that word during our review, though you weren't here for this review. My number five is Claire Denis' High Life, which was discussed on episode 724 of Film Spotting in April, reviewed the movie with Scott Tobias, our resident Claire Denis Stan, and I interviewed, along with Scott, Claire Denis for that show. So if you missed it, definitely encourage you to check that out over at filmspotting.net. A movie about Monty, who is played by Robert Pattinson, who is a convict, who has accepted a mission to go into space and basically be tested on in different medical
1: experiments. We were scum. Trash. Refuse that didn't fit into the system. Until someone had the bright idea of recycling us of science Da-da. the odds are not in my favor mm-hmm. but when my work is accomplished when perfection is achieved then what fly away Da-da. i know i look like a witch you're foxy and you know it.
2: juliet binoche is the doctor on this doomed vessel and at some point we realize actually from the very beginning of the film it's a movie that's largely told through flashbacks, we see that he has a daughter, and it is ultimately just him and that daughter left hurtling through space that he is trying to care for. I mentioned movies that force us to ask questions, movies that provoke. Talk to Denny about her end provocation with this movie, the line of dialogue we hear, which is, shall we? Shall we do that? Whatever that is, shall we have love and feel love and give it to others in the face of hopelessness. It's a movie that's very much about taboos and also about contradictions. We get these juxtapositions of past versus present, of creating life and destroying life, of intimacy and compassion and also remoteness and rage. And it's a movie also, and Denis talked about this too, that seems incredibly mindful of science and wants to get the details right and the rules of space right and at other times I think you could say it's completely uninterested in those details and those digressions. It's not in any conventional way a sci-fi movie and Denis' camera reflects all of these contradictions. Sometimes it's just stagnant and observational. Other times it's more flowing through the haunting corridors of this ship. Sometimes it's very close to the characters and relying on close-ups. Other times it offers distance. We see it in the colors too, right from the beginning, the lush garden. And it's rich. We get those rich greens or we get the icy blues and we get the muted yellows. This was actually the last pick. I went in reverse order for some reason as I was jotting down notes, and it did occur to me, we'll see if people can make the connection as they hear my picks, it did occur to me that all my choices for this top five are in a way about isolation. Isolation and disconnection, though in very different forms. I think High Life is the most blatant one because other than in those flashbacks, Monty and his daughter are totally alone millions of miles away, at least from anyone else. I mentioned Binoche. She's kind of a witch doctor or maybe a doctor witch. And of course, being Binoche, she is absolutely a force. While Pattinson, I would say, is just as powerful, even though he's way more withdrawn. And yeah, his deliberate and deliberately bizarre high life is. I found it oddly moving. And like another space movie on my list, absolutely unique. You describe it as a movie that forces you to
0: ask questions, and I'd agree, you know, questions that are good, not confusion. Right. And after I saw it, after I caught up with it, I think I texted you right away with a question, right, that was kind of clarifying but also interpretive, and yeah, that's absolutely the kind of film this is. I think Denise is up to all that stuff you talked about. I think she's also very specifically up to thinking about sex. Mm -hmm. She is a sensualist as a filmmaker, has considered sex from a variety of different angles in previous films here, though. It strikes me that sex is a curse. It's just something that, at least for this community of convicts mm-hmm. who are stuck, who are isolated, um, it, it's it's a burden they have to bear in some ways. It's an urge they have to satisfy that yeah. doesn't really provide. Any sense of pleasure, and really. No, I yeah. mean that bleep box that we're introduced to, one of the most horrifying <laughs> Did things. you just bleep yourself? Yeah, well, I thought that'd be more efficient. Th- that That is terrifying, that vision of sex. And also, you know, it's... With these experiments, it's like it's simply a sticky means to a reproductive end. Yeah, Where all of this goes is absolutely wild, probably as wild as Binoche's performance. She is something. You you stole my description. She just describes really? herself as a witch. Oh, does she? And she is a doctor. So it's kind of right it's there been for us. But uh, yeah, a witch slash doctor. Absolutely. I agree with you. Pattinson is fantastic. He's always great. And um, you know what? He makes a vow of chastity. That doesn't really help him all that much. No. So, this is another rough one, and you talked about color. Denise, a master of color. Even if you've only seen Beau Travail, you know this, and you're right. She uses the ship's lighting system to give a distinct reason why we're shifting from these cool medical blues to these warm arousing reds. Yeah, and that garden, that conservatory yes. where they grow their vegetables. I love everything is, about the
2: beginning and the credits. Yeah,
0: how it opens. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't expect that at all, but it is this primordial Eden, and you know, Eden recalls a place where nakedness, Mm -hmm. carried no shame. But here, what happens in high life, it's like we're crash landing into the fall and it's intense and provocative. Right now it is streaming as well. It is. Blu-ray July 9th. Yeah. But digital
2: platforms right now. There you go. So people can catch up with it. Yeah. And like a lot of Denise's choices, artistic choices, everything really is rooted in practicality. I think the color is even a case where not only does it fit what is happening on screen, but I think it helps us identify kind of where we are in time, too. Sure, it yeah. ties us emotionally to what Pattinson is going through emotionally. Does this mean you buried the lead and this is your number four, or did you just have a lot to say about my number five? <laughs>
0: well, see, this is what happens when I when I miss these shows where we talk about these movies. It gets bottled up. Yes, High Life is good enough to be my number four.
2: Okay. Well, we'll see if we can keep complimenting each other here as I get to my number four, and it is... Jordan Peele's Us, and I even have the plot synopsis here in front of me, and I don't quite know how to paraphrase the movie, but it's, of course, about Lupita Nyong'o's character, Adelaide. She experiences a trauma as a young child. We come to her later in her life with her family, a husband and two children, and they return to the beach area, the small little town where that trauma occurred, and she was incredibly apprehensive and didn't want to go, and it turns out the feeling she had was absolutely right. From there, if you haven't seen it, we'll just say it becomes kind of a home invasion movie, but then goes to some much weirder territory from there.
1: You know how sometimes things line up? Coincidences? Since we've been up here, they've been happening more and more. It's like there's this black cloud Hanging over us
2: There's a family in our driveway
1: Who is that? Uh Run
2: Questions. Has any movie this year provoked more theories and what it all really means discussion? I don't know if any movie in the past few years has really provoked this much theorizing. And without getting into spoilers, I remember our conversation. You read it as being about class inequality and a statement about the consequences of materialism and consumption, consequences that we deny every day that Jordan Peele here makes us confront. He makes us confront that usually on the other end of that, there is some kind of suffering. Now, listener Cesar Gonzalez wrote in and said, no, I hear you, Josh, but it's not about any of those things at all. It doesn't feel really substantially about consumerism and the way, say, Get Out was obviously about race. For him and other listeners, more of a horror satire about Trump and our red state, blue state divided America, even pointing to the hands across America motif that is repeated in the film being... A very obvious wall. So you can read it that way if you want. Now, my mind has just been blown. Reaction to the ending was more tied to the philosophical and the existential questions. I thought it was raising more kind of universal dilemmas about identity and about the nature of love. And hey, it could be all those things, or it could just be Jordan Peele doing his best impersonation of M. Night Shyamalan. And he really does pull it off here in a lot of ways. I still haven't gotten to the bottom of. Lupita Nyong'o apparently not being able to clap on the beat, which is a problem I had with the trailer, because the whole trailer was built around that scene of them in the car, and I got five on it playing, and she's teaching her son, I think, in the back seat how to clap, and she's never on the beat, and I thought, well, did someone just never correct her, and she's just exhibiting her really poor sense of rhythm, and then you watch the movie and realize, well, no, that might even be a clue to something, right? And I think you well, could yeah, go we're that way. Around spoilers, yeah, you could go I that think, way if you wanted to. Yeah, I think it is a clue. There's even a specific theory about the sun and his tether, which is a subject that comes up in the movie that a listener named Barb in Madison, Connecticut, wrote in with, and I've seen it pop up elsewhere as well. That just makes my brain hurt if I even start to consider it. And she wrote in a day or two later to say, "You know what? Here's another article that totally debunks the theory I shared <laughs> two days ago." But I really love. Her closing line of the email. She said, Still, it's been a long time since I've cared enough to do the digging. Yeah. And that 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 speaks to to this movie. It speaks to my entire list, and it sounds like a lot of yours as well. The only reason I haven't really started to dig yet beyond what we did during our review is because I know once I go down that hole, I'll never come out. And I'm a little bit afraid. But beyond all of that, there's peels. Like Denis, kind of observational camera and the economy of it all, the way he dispenses information and every bit of detail matters in the film, and Nyong'o's performance, which is definitely one of the best of the year. I'll even throw in this little Easter egg in a movie that is filled with Easter eggs. Aaron Crabtree, a longtime listener, wrote in, I don't think we shared this on the show previously, he said... I enjoyed your conversation about us. You guys talked about the Spielberg reference of Jason, the son wearing the Jaws t-shirt at the beach. But did you think about how that whole beach sequence was an homage to the scene in Jaws where the boy gets eaten? The editing where Jason wanders off and Adelaide starts to panic is pretty much identical. Also, the way Adelaide is not listening to Kitty Mm -hmm. and is distracted the same as Chief Brody is distracted at the beach in that same scene. Just thought the reference was clever. It is indeed clever. The whole movie is clever, and I think... Regardless of which allegorical reading you choose to latch onto, profound.
0: Yeah, that's an accurate word for it. And I will have more to say about us a little bit further down in my list.
2: And if you haven't seen it, you have opportunities. It's streaming on various digital platforms now, it's also out on Blu ray. So if your favorite film of the year hasn't been mentioned yet, fear not. Our three
0: through one picks are still ahead, plus the results, with listener comments from the film spotting poll on the topic. We'll also play Massacre Theater, and I get a chance to defend myself against you? the libel that took place in my <laughs> absence regarding the ending of Toy Story 4. Stay with us.
1: Kindergarten. I knew it. No, no, You're no, trying guys, to get listen, Bonnie
0: in l- trouble? No, of course not. You
1: could have been confiscated.
2: What does that
0: mean? Taken away.
1: <gasps> no! Or worse, you could
2: have been lost.
0: No, no, no. Guys, listen. Bonnie had a great day in class. And we're going on a road trip. Road trip? Vacation! <laughs> but then something really weird happened. Bonnie made a friend in class.
1: What oh, car- she's already making so friends.
0: Like... No, no. She literally made
2: a new friend.
1: Hey, it's okay. Come on out. That's it. Come on, there you go. Uh, Come on, let's get you out of there. Uh, you got this. Uh, good, good.
0: Everyone, I want you to meet Forky.
2: You're listening to Film Spotting. That's a clip from Toy Story 4. Everybody's favorite character, Forky. Last week on the show, we had a review along with our top five scenes from the Toy Story series. Now, Josh, you were not here for that review or that top five, but Griffin Newman from the Blank Check podcast filled in quite capably. A Toy Story fanatic. Pretty long show if you've heard the entire podcast version i think josh you're still making your way through that episode yeah I'm, I'm whacking my way through but have been enjoying what i've heard so far so maybe well, you haven't even I'm is well, was maybe say, a maybe, strong strong phrase maybe you haven't even gotten to the part where we completely prove you wrong
0: i have that just happened, completely dissect your take on the ending. i don't think that's even in the nope. bonus actually
2: <laughs> that might exist somewhere in your head so yeah your toy story four review was evoked a couple of times we basically threw you under the bus for completely in our opinion misreading the end of the film and I really would love to give you a forum, but as we're diving in here, can't get too much into spoilers. So how are you going to not only ably defend yourself but do it without giving any details away oh we're gonna get into spoilers oh (laughs) so okay (laughs) yeah that trap is not gonna
0: work Hmm. so we'll if you haven't seen toy story 4 yet um we'll give you a few seconds to to jump ahead i don't think this will take too long uh, to undermine what you and griffin said i'll first begin by saying that griffin was really great i mean I felt terrible so about missing this show. I love Pixar in general, as listeners know, and this series in particular. So at least there was someone who had such huge passion for the series in particular on. And he he had some great things to say. I'm only, as I said, through the review, can't wait to jump into the top five and hear more of that. As far as uh, the ending, mm-hmm. and here we'll start to get into some spoilers I seemed to get the impression that you both thought my main concern was that Woody was no longer serving a kid, you know, kind of setting that aside from his identity. By going off with, here's the spoiler at the very end, Yeah, he chooses while the other toys are going back into the RV to return to Bonnie, go home. To go off with serving Bo. a kid and being with his friends. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay, so there it is. For me, the kid part is important. Um, I, I do think that it doesn't mean that's what every toy has to do, but I think it's crucial to who Woody thinks he is, how he gets value, how he he feels like he's that's part of his identity. So it's not a false thing for him to enjoy serving kids. And I think this movie in particular, as all the others, have shown the value of that in characters like Forky and Gabby and so forth. But it's not all-consuming for me that that's—it's much more for me about the community. That's why, as you guys referenced in in my review, I describe it as him not being a wild, wild west cowboy, being a cowboy for the ranch, the corral where he gathers everyone together. That's why I landed on that— Analogy: He's just always been sacrificial. He's even sacrificial here. So, so the idea that now he's going to pursue some life that he's always denied himself strikes me as quite a diversion from what we've seen and who we've known as Woody. And honestly, the reason I had that visceral reaction to it is I'm just really worried about Woody. I don't think he's going to be happy out there. It's kind of like when when a friend makes a really bad relationship decision and you can see the future for them, but they're just too besotted or something to to be rational about it. Isn't that what and, makes and this interesting, like, though, yeah. that he makes that bold so of a choice, that, so he that's might, it. that he might fail? That's, that's it. I feel the pressure for this fourth film. You guys referenced all of the production. I don't want to say troubles, but just it was a lengthy production with a lot of fits and starts, different people, hands on it. I feel the pressure to do something different, being more prominent on what happens than anything that feels natural to the rest of the series. I'm not saying that they don't set it up well in the film. Mm-hmm. They do a very careful job of setting that. So logically, plot structurally, it works. I just don't think Woody's going to be happy on the road with Bo. <laughs> and, and let me clarify one more other thing, too, is that I'm not saying that Bo's choice is wrong. I love, no, of course. I love the vision of Bo here. It's it's more that what's good for Bo isn't necessarily good for Woody, but this, I also described her in my review as Furiosa from Mad Max Fury Road, driving around in this remote-controlled yeah. car disguised as a skunk, just out there, living this crazy, brave life. Now, in the ending, I would argue that Woody is Furiosa and Bo is Max. So what I mean by that <laughs> is Woody, his... Identity is in staying with the community, just like Furiosa did when she returned with the other women to foster this better community, Mm -hmm. provide care, protection. And Bo is Max, just gonna head out to the next adventure. If if Bo comes across a band that needs help in some way, Bo's gonna provide it. She's Mad Max. They could just, you know, still be true to who they are, have this moment. And it wouldn't be this weird, like undercutting of who we've always known Woody hmm. to be. What makes him happy? What defines him? See? He's going to be Adam in <laughs> Toy Story Five. He's going to be coming back with like a torn off arm and just in such and he'll have loved every angst. second no, of he'll it. He'll say he'll have me, loved
2: the adventure. Get me
0: to the playroom.
2: Get me no. to the playroom, please. No, I don't think so. I feel like this connection you're making between Mad Max and Furiosa. Is appropriate, but that's what makes it so dramatically interesting is that the very sense of adventure and Individual fulfillment, while also, as we talked about, fully being about serving a community. In fact, serving a community, he's always been about, which is other toys, but not to ta- just not just ta- his toys, ta- but other that toys. Into a
0: post credit scene. No, but I don't think it shows it's just, you. It's not
2: just the post credits; it's everything along the way to get him. Well, there. that's who he's always been. though. That's who he's always been. So right. it's fundamental and truthful to who he is. But what I'm saying is that's the complexity of it. The beauty of it is that in the end, she's that individual, that rugged individual, but she's been longing for a sense of that community and Woody brings that back to her. Yes, she has friends, but I think it's that sense of nostalgia even. It's that sense of that old group that she was a part of, that she will indelibly always be connected to in some way. She's getting that back with Woody while also being fundamentally who she is. Woody's going to retain who he is, but also get to explore this other side of himself. I just love the fact that we get to see a new, every film has given us a different existential crisis for Woody. And at the end, he is now... Making the boldest choice he's made yet, and I kind of love the fact that I don't know how it's going to work out for him. But I do feel like it had to be that. I really like Griffin's reading too of it being almost like empty nesters, where yes, when he that really works early right? in the review, where when the whole he film talks, it's been about defining yeah. yourself through other people, and at some point then going, you know what, I have done my service. Now, how do I live? when I can't define myself that way? That's a
0: fascinating question. I like the way the movie deals with it. Griffin used the word retirement, and at the L.A. meetup, we were talking some Toy Story with the people who had seen it, and uh, I'm sorry I'm forgetting exactly who it was, but someone brought up that exact same word, who also liked the ending, and said that they read it as a retirement story, which I can see. Mm -hmm. I, I think... You could still have explored that without making this drastic of a difference, in suggesting that this is what Woody has really always meant to be. That, that to me is like too no, much of a turn. See, of I don't his read it as if it's saying character. he's
2: always meant to be that. I don't. Well, I definitely don't read it that. That's kind of how you way.
0: guys were talking about: is that he had been denying himself. Yes, and here we come back to this idea of it doesn't mean you have to fulfill all of your own personal dreams and desires to fulfill your purpose. It's back to Woody being a sacrificial character and someone who who exists for the community and for the children he serves. Now, in Toy Story 4, he may have to give up the leadership role. I think that's very interesting interesting. in itself that he's going to have to once again address. He's not necessarily the favorite toy. He's not necessarily the sheriff, but he's still, I feel, is meant for the community.
2: Right. But you are maybe taking the word denial a little bit too strongly. It's denial in the same way as parents. We've lived for our kids, denying a certain part of ourselves, but never regretting a second of it, never saying along the way, man, I really wish I was leading a different life. But it's when you get through that life, you then say, okay, now now, what choices do I make? I've had my choices essentially made for me my whole life, and Woody has throughout all the films. He's always known what his constant is. He's always known it, and I love the fact that finally at the end, to go back to us a little bit he's untethered.
0: But you don't but you don't you don't change what um, provides you fulfillment. And I guess that's the distinction. I don't think he has cuz he's still making. helping toys. Well, again and here we're back to the he's only helping toys cuz they drop those scenes at the end of the credits. But he also doesn't me, have a choice. It feels like what a choice make-up. does he have? It's like
2: is he going to is he going to go back? Is it going to go back to the If the movie ends with him getting always, in the RV. Always been fulfilled. What and a bad ending that fulfilled
0: been. in a new, different way with a new role within that community. But I really think it's glaring that all of this sense that he's still going to serve toys is not safe for the climactic
2: moment of his choice. It's suggested by every choice Bo makes leading up to that, that that's the life he's he's joining. That's what she well, kind of does. Yeah, not, she rescues these misfit toys. And he does that as
0: well throughout the right, film. That's right. still his character. I'm just, yes. I'm just saying the decisive moment for him is not rooted in the possibility of caring for other toys. It's rooted in more of the romantic element that has been laid out in this film with its cold open, and in the few touches in the previous yeah, film, just put Green a lot I, of weight we on We see that. it
2: differently. It's we, a, we disagree on the weight the, of the romance. But that's fine. The weight of the romance we is all about that
0: decisive moment. Okay. All of the visual information we're given is that his choice is driven by Bo. Then to in the end credits. By what Bo represents. Then say.
2: Not Bo herself.
0: That's not how that moment plays. That's how I watched it. And then you're watching it through the lens of the end credits where you're like, no. oh. No, but in now, the moment. watching it through Woody's eyes. that they're together to I it through toys. Woody's eyes. I just feel it's a failure of the film if you have to provide that much motivation in an end credits sequence. And let me back up here because I I, I want to like – I know you said it was a positive review. Thank you for that. <laughs> but but this is – in this case, whenever I have a quibble with something, that a movie that I otherwise enjoyed, it comes across as I hate the movie. Like Toy Story 4 quite a bit. And I'm with you both on Forky, absolutely, and – I think that character alone justifies making a fourth film, I would say. I could have used more of Forky as well,
2: as I think Griffin mm-hmm. suggested, too. Have we done it? Have we sure. Have we spent sure. enough time on Toy Story 4? Have we derailed the show enough with that <laughs> spoiler-filled segment? Everybody can come back into the fold now like josh wants woody to if you want to hear last week's episode you can check it out at filmspotting.net or wherever you get your podcast toy story 4 is of course out now in wide release and yeah really do recommend that show mainly because of griffin's enthusiasm for the films and that top five which was really one of the most fun for me over the years of doing the show. A couple quick housekeeping notes for our Chicago-based listeners. We have advanced screening and sometimes run-of-engagement passes available very often at filmspotting.net. You just have to click on events at the top of the page. Currently, we are offering passes to Tony Morrison, The Pieces I Am. It's a documentary that presents an artful and intimate meditation on the life and works of the acclaimed novelist. Timothy Greenfield Sanders is the director. He is the director of The Blacklist. And and other list documentaries. That advanced screening is Monday, July 1st. So if you hear this in time and want to enter to win those passes, please do go to filmspotting.net slash events. We also wanted to plug our favorite podcast, The Next Picture Show. This week, it's part one of their two-part Men in Black pairing, looking at the new film, In relation to the 97 original, always good stuff on that show. It drops every Tuesday at midnight. Please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Do you also want my catch-up review of Men in Black International? Oh my
2: gosh, you saw it? We did. We saw it Debbie just needed to get her Hemsworth fix after the disappointment of Hemsworth's appearance in Endgame, right? That's pretty much it. I nailed it, it, right?
0: That is pretty much it. Kids were on her side as well. So, um, I told you it was going to be bad. You remember when I told you it was going to be bad? Yeah, it's bad.
2: (laughs) Okay, moving on from there and changing the tone completely, we got an email from Jose, who actually wrote in before last week's show, and said, please do not forget to mention this week's episode, The Passing Away, of Italian director Franco Zeffirelli. He is responsible, among many other things, for perhaps the best Jane Eyre adaptation ever. That didn't really fit into last week's Toy Story extravaganza, but also... Zeffirelli is a filmmaker who obviously I'm familiar with and have always wanted to dive into his Romeo and Juliet, which if you saw some of the tributes and different articles about Zeffirelli over the past week or so on social media, a lot of them mention how their ninth grade English teachers decided to screen Zeffirelli's version of Romeo and Juliet, oh, yeah. which for a lot of people was their kind of first glimpse of real nudity on screen i think the best one i saw it i can't remember who it was but someone detailed how their teacher actually during that scene like stood up by the tv with a piece of paper or a book (laughs) and blocked the nudity (laughs) blocked it josh which just doesn't mess with the art at all but zeffirelli for me a filmmaker i can't speak about with any sense of erudition whatsoever i can't even fake it i don't know about you
0: well, I, I had the high school experience, so saw okay. both of those, you know, those, those were sort of the rewards for reading the book is how it always felt when, when you were doing this in English is First, we'll read this book and then we all get to watch it in class. So yeah, saw both of those, remember liking them um, for reasons other than what you just mentioned. Right. I uh,
2: would like to revisit those now as an adult and of course, other of his work. So quick Romeo and Juliet digression. As longtime listeners know, I was an English major, spent a semester in London, studied Shakespeare in detail, Shakespeare in performance, and yet I moved to a new high school after my freshman year, and at my ninth grade high school, we read other Shakespeare in our English class. Maybe it was As You Like It. We didn't do Romeo and Juliet. Now, I found out when I moved to my new school that everybody in ninth grade read Romeo and Juliet, so I never got to it in high school, managed to take all those English classes, study, as I said, abroad, go to all those productions, never read, never seen, a production of Romeo and Juliet still at this age, and I've never even actually watched the full Boslerman version. So I don't know if you. I'm should lucky have, I even know the story. I don't know if you should have admitted all of that. If it wasn't for West Side Story, I wouldn't <laughs> know Romeo and Juliet at all. That is your Romeo and Juliet. Okay, let's move on from there to maybe an embarrassing story from you, Josh. Maybe you had too much to drink at the LA meetup. We got this note from longtime friend of the show Brett Merriman, who this is just before the event, because it turns out you had such a demand. <laughs> You had such a demand for your time that you had to send out an email and try to break people up like, like a junior high class by alphabet.
0: It got it got a little scary there when the RSVPs started rolling in. The place had already told me how how many people they could take, right? Turned out to be quite
2: a bit more who RSVP'd. (laughs) I love Brett's tweet. He said, in short, we're going in shifts. Listeners 05 to 09 get private time. 10 to 17 get a round of beers. If you began listening in the last 18 months, I'm sorry, you have to park the cars. Which is, you should have done that.
0: Which is, in L.A. is important. Parking is. is a pain, real pain. So thank you, Brett, for setting that up. Uh, it was a great time. We ended up having, I think actually 55 people did RSVP. I'm going to say the number was closer, maybe to something like 40. Well, after um, you made it tough on them and gave them shifts to appear in. Talk about a way to squash the excitement. It's like the only way this is possibly going to work is if we do break up. But yeah, who wants to get that email? Like, come if your last name is during this time. It worked. Met a lot of both, as Brett suggested, longtime listeners and new listeners. Um, lots of conversation about the show, of course. People still big fans of Massacre Theater. Hmm. Uh, A lot of film Spotty madness talk as well. We got to discuss, we also, in addition to Men in Black International, the family squeezed in Hitchcock's Rebecca, just to make it up to me. Uh, No, I think they all like that better as well. So we talked about LA's repertory scene, which is one of the things that makes me the most jealous of the people who actually live there. And yeah, we talked about Toy Story 4. So what's very cool, especially when you get a group this size is that, you know, people kind of group up their little pockets and you see strangers just bonding over movies. And I think if, if they were, if I'm remembering our conversation, right, Brett and Jason, you probably know this. They met at a film spotty meetup. Does that sound right? It does. Absolutely. sound okay, yeah, Right. And that, they've been very good friends yes, since and like, friends that I visit whenever I go back to LA. Yeah, well, they're, they're my best friends now. So I oh, just wanted to sit so Jason Eakin and Brett Merriman and, 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 and just you're out. Gonna, Sorry, you're just out. just
2: going to step away from the <laughs> mic.
0: But that, is a cool story. What about Ben Callum? And Can I claim my, Ben? No, no, I've no Ben. Uh, my second meeting with Ben. Fine. Although it was so, it was so many years ago. He had to remind me of that. It was in New York. <laughs> See, he doesn't care about you. It was in New York. It was a different city.
2: Oh, I know. That's where I met yeah. him too. Okay, all right. Good
0: for you. Anyway, <laughs> very cool seeing listeners get together, get to know each other. Maybe. Maybe making like future friends, you know, like Brett and Jason did. And, yeah. and just getting to hang out in L.A. later doing movie stuff. So it was a good time. Everyone followed the rules.
2: Reasonable tab. <laughs> Please don't take my film spotting credit. Card I away. won't take it away. Thank you. I'm so glad you had a great time out in L.A. With that, speaking of Massacre Theater, maybe we should play it, Josh, because last week on the show we not only just thoroughly debunked your reading of Toy Story 4, but also Griffin acted you under the table redoing your scene. It was really just a lot of insults for you. I haven't gotten to that yet. Oh. And now I just don't think I'm going to bother with the rest of the show. <laughs> this is, of course, the part of the show where we perform a scene and you get a chance at winning a film spotting t-shirt. A couple weeks back, Josh and I, followed by Griffin and I, massacred this scene.
1: What's happened to you, Dewey Cox? Stay out of this, darling. You're driving away the people who love you most. I don't need anybody, Darlene.
2: All
0: I need is my music.
1: This ain't about your music, Dewey. It's about the drugs.
0: Honey, I told you I'm going to quit again.
2: Just as soon as the record's done, whenever that might be. Look, you can't rush the a masterpiece.
1: You need to take a break, Dewey. You need to clean yourself up. Otherwise... Otherwise what? Otherwise, I can't be married to you no more. I know you don't mean that. I believe you know that I do.
0: You heard Jenna Fisher as Darlene Madison and John C. Riley as Dewey Cox in Walk Hard. It was written by Judd Apatow and Jake Kasdan, directed by Kasdan. And that massacre was part of a show a few weeks back now when we had a review of Jim Jarmusch's The Dead Don't Die, along with Adam's interview with the creative team behind The Last Black Man in San Francisco. Adam shared his thoughts on Rocket Man as well. We were all just dying Mm. to hear those. Thanks, Adam. There's always some tie-in between the show and the theater scene, of course, so let's see how listeners did making the connections. Nick Colucci from Buffalo, New York, said the most obvious connection is that Walk Hard spoofs the genre of one of the movies reviewed in this week's episode, Rocket Man. Another connection is that in Walk Hard and Rocket Man, the two main characters' careers are affected by the Beatles. In Rocket Man, Reginald Dwight gets the latter half of his stage name, Elton John, by looking at a picture of the Beatles, specifically John Lennon. In Walk Hard, Dewey Cox is introduced to LSD by the Beatles, which sends his career and personal life into a downward spiral,
2: which leads to the scene that is featured in Massacre Theater. There you go. Your friend Albert. Malafront from Pasadena, California writes in and says, props on you both for almost selling this as Ray or walk the line, but the you can't rush a masterpiece line tip me off. As far as connections go, Walk Hard is a send up of musical biopics like Rocketman, whereas The Dead Don't Die is a send up of zombie films. Walk Hard may be more of a straight up parody, but they both exhibit that meta self-awareness. Taron Egerton, who plays Sir Elton, starred with Elton John in the Kingsman sequel, along with Julianne Moore. We're really getting in deep here, Josh. Moore, of course, with John C. Riley, a.k.a. Dewey Cox in Magnolia and Boogie Nights. Dewey Cox performed a cover of Starman by David Bowie, who was a frequent collaborator of Iggy Pop, one of the stars of The Dead Don't Die. Wow. I'm excited to hear what other connections there are, Albert says. I could not figure out why the names were changed to Reggie and Reba, so I appreciate the cleverness there. Thanks for the great show. I wish I could answer that part. That was our producer, Sam, who, well... I know why he changed the last name of Reggie to what he did. I don't know why Dewey became Reggie, but Reba kind of works as a country music name. Sure. Yeah. So I'm, sure I'm, that's I'm just going, going with that. And I think Sam just liked the name Reggie. It's kind of a fun name to say. We also heard from Sean
0: Means in Salt Lake City, Utah. Walk Hard had a cameo by Ghost Faced Killa of the Wu-Tang Clan. And in The Dead Don't Die, there's a Wu-Tang themed parcel service. Whoop, yes. Yeah. And Risa is the delivery guy. Love that touch.
2: Wow. Well done, Sean. David Driscoll in Washington, D.C., sending in a personal tie-in. When I attended a Tom Waits concert at the Auditorium Theater in Chicago back in 06, John C. Riley was sitting in the seat in front of me, dressed from head to toe, in complete Waits garb-slash-costume, including the thick beard and a hat, exactly like the one Waits was wearing on stage. The resemblance was so uncanny that on the way out after the show, people started approaching Riley, asking him to play additional encores and wondering how he had teleported from backstage to the orchestra section it was pretty amusing
0: (laughs) that's fantastic and exactly what we were going for one more here from andre cadeau from charlottesville virginia What a treat to get two renditions of the same scene for Masker Theater. The first one with you 2 was pretty run-of-the-mill in terms of voices. Josh was obviously the guy in the scene, and Adam was the gal. The second one with Griffin Newman and Adam was far more experimental. To play a scene from Walk Hard, the Dewey Cox story as Miss Piggy, and a southern Kermit the Frog really pushes the envelope. Well,
2: now I do want to hear it. Yeah, I mean, now you have to. Reach into the film spotting hat, Josh, and pick out this week's winner. The winner is James Cottrell,
0: who notes that he's formerly a wandering
2: Nebraskan. Which means we don't know where he is right now. I hope he has a P.O. box so we can send him his very own film spotting t-shirt. He's like Woody. He's out there wandering. That's it. Just unhappy. That's it. Yeah. Looking, miserable.
0: Looking at just, Bo over his cup uh-huh. of coffee. What What did I do?
2: <laughs> Email us, James, and tell us if that's the life you're leading. Feedback at FilmSpotting.net.
1: Yeah. And how did I know what to say? The words were written down for me in a script. How did I know where to stand? People told me.
2: We are really going to put the massacre into massacre theater as we get to this week's scene. No way this can be good. No, I mean, just not even remotely close and actually totally embarrassing. Potentially offensive? Potentially offensive. Okay, I mean, we could cause an international situation (laughs) here. I think you started out. I guess I'm going to give you the action and I'm going to try to discover an accent. As we go. Uh,
0: I'll give you a second or two.
2: Thank you. Okay. And
0: action. Hey, pardon me for asking, but who's that little old man? Uh, what little old man? That little old man. Oh, that one's my grandfather. Your grandfather? Yeah. That's not your grandfather. It is, you know. But I've seen your grandfather. He lives in your house.
2: Uh, that's my grandfather. But he's my grandfather as well. How do you reckon that one out? Well, everyone's entitled to two, aren't they? And that's my other one.
0: We know that, but
2: what's he doing here? Well, my mother thought the trip would do him good. How's that? He's nursing a broken heart. Ah, uh, poor old thing. Hey, mister, are you nursing a
0: broken heart? He's a nice old man, isn't he? He's very
2: clean. And <laughs> scene.
0: You, the last syllable. You Just the last? Answer. I got yeah, it? Hey. I got it
2: finally. That's okay. All it takes. Great. We did, for the people who really know this scene, we did commit some kind of... Heresy by combining two voices. We ruined the art. Yeah, I think we probably did. It's like
0: holding up a piece of paper Mm. in front of Romeo and Juliet (laughs) is what we did.
2: If you know what film we just massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Your deadline is Monday, July 15th. The winner will be selected randomly from all the
0: correct entries and announced in a couple of weeks.
1: Hi, Adam and Josh in Film Spotting Land. This is Joshua Youngerman, friend of the show, calling from Brooklyn, New York, with my favorite film of the year so far. Surprisingly enough, I think in a year where we've gotten such visionary work from directors like Claire Denis with High Life and then also uh, Little Woods, which features Tessa Thompson, my favorite film of the year is actually Wild Rose, directed by Tom Harper. Yes, the story of a country western singer from
2: Glasgow. I think the film features a bravura knockout performance from
1: Jesse Buckley in the lead role as Rose Lynn. And I also think this is as much a study of the working class and the struggles of the working class as it is a rags to riches uh, music film. And I also think like a film I love, Eight Mile, it's much more a film about taking responsibility than it is about someone making it big in the music industry. Looking forward to hearing your picks and looking forward to the show. Take care.
2: We get back into our best films of the year so far talk with that voicemail from longtime listener Josh Youngerman talking about a film that has been on my radar that I've been really excited to see for some time. In fact, I'm pretty sure it played here at the Chicago Critics Film Festival, but we didn't get there. Does that sound right to you? I thought Wild Rose was on the line. It's possible. Yeah. Because I even at one point, I think, had a link to see the film and ran out of time. And now Josh is really making me feel bad about it. So Josh, if you are so fundamentally against biopics that are about musicians, Mm -hmm. are you okay with movies about musicians that are not real? Yes, I will allow it. You'll allow it. Okay. (laughs) So you will see Wild Rose.
0: Yeah, I'd love to. It sounds interesting. Sounds great. And I've heard early good
2: responses to it beyond Josh's. So for sure. Wild Rose could have been Selected as a choice in our best film of the year so far poll at filmspotting.net over the past few weeks. That is if you decided to write it in as other. The choices we gave you were Avengers Endgame, Booksmart, Her Smell, High Life, John Wick, Chapter 3, Parabellum, or Us. Josh, how did it come out? Well, I know John Wick Chapter
0: 3 got fairly glowing reviews, but it's last place in this poll, so I don't know if that's a sign of exhaustion on the listener's part, but it did receive 3%. Receiving 6%, Her Smell, followed by High Life, which also received 6%. A jump up here to Avengers Endgame, which received 17% of the vote. Booksmart got 19% of the vote. The other category that snagged second place in this poll with 22%, but winning with 27% of the vote, was your number four That's film right. of the year
2: so far, Adam? Us. Eric Howder wrote in, I'm afraid that it has to be us, just on the strength of the ongoing whack doodle hands-across-America gag. I love a good weird film, and apparently so does the rest of the world. I saw this film one Sunday morning by myself, and while the credits were rolling, found myself in an extended conversation with scattered groups of strangers concerning what it was all about. There hmm. you go. Any movie that makes people talk in the theater after the film, of course, has to be a winner.
0: We also heard from Kevin Hills. I wanted so badly to vote for Booksmart or Us, but then I remembered that time in Endgame when, spoiler, and
2: then, spoiler, you know what I mean. Adam Graf writes, without question, Her Smell is my favorite movie of the year so far, and probably one of the most bizarre cinematic experiences of my entire life. The first half of the movie felt like an assault, and I pretty much hated it, but then I got about three-fourths of the way through, and I was completely turned around. I liked it. By the end credits, I realized the assault of the first half was completely necessary for the film, and what ultimately catapulted my admiration for the film to the highest level.
0: Here's Eric Hill. He's from Fredericton, New Brunswick. Okay, so High Life is sitting in my movie queue waiting to be watched, as is her smell. Avengers Endgame is likely the movie event of the year so far. And though I'm a through-and-through horror fan, I am in the small group of people who are underwhelmed by us. So, my highest-rated 2019 film on Letterboxd is... Paddleton? You know, from the people who brought you Blue Jay... But really, the Duplass brothers, along with collaborator Alexandra Lehman, managed to create a buddy film that is as off-kilter as it is touching. And which feels both comically elevated yet really, really real as the friendship between Mark Duplass and Ray Romano encounters a very nasty bump in the
2: road. I do want to see that movie, Paddleton. Josh, I don't think you effectively sold—I hate to criticize your acting, but I'm not sure you effectively sold the double question mark and exclamation points after the people who brought you Blue Jay.
0: After all the praise— uh, For uh, Griffin in your Massacre Theater, I've lost all my confidence.
2: That's what it. can I say? Sam Vargan in Santa Ana, California says, I love Booksmart, but my vote goes to other four. The Last Black Man in San Francisco. The film has stayed with me in the weeks since I've seen it like no other this year. I have a special connection to it as a Bay Area native lamenting the economic crises facing the region that has been well explored in film over the last couple of years. And while Sorry to Bother You and Blind Spotting took a satirical approach to similar issues, Last Black Man uses a quieter, more melancholy and poetic style. I've had trouble describing it because I can't think of many other movies that feel just like it. Please go see and support this film. Just a couple of weeks ago, we did talk to Joe Talbot and Jimmy Fay jimmy is the star and co-wrote the story joe talbot the director of the last black man in san francisco so that interview can be found over at filmspotting.net and it is absolutely a strong contender we both agree for this year's film spotting golden
0: brick award this note comes to us from a listener who only identifies as gs maybe this is the reason i guess i'll be the one film spotting listener repping glass remember *Glass* came out this year, Adam. I'm trying to forget. Not just the most essential comic book movie of the decade, but one of the most vital auteur-led films of the decade,
2: too. I only teased GS. I liked Glass. You did, and you maybe haven't gotten to this part of last week's show with Griffin, but in this poll talk segment, Griffin went to bat for Glass as one of his favorite movies of the year. See, I knew he was a smart guy. Okay. J.M. Bossy in Vancouver says, my vote goes to Under the Silver Lake. If you judge movies based on their coherence, their ability to satisfy, and the tightness of their assembly, look elsewhere. Under the Silver Lake eschews convention scene after scene, prioritizing relevance to our solipsistic and fragmented era, compiling numerous vignettes of unsettling absurdity with connective tissue as reliable as the scattered worldview of its paranoid lead. Love this prose. The film, exemplifies issues of toxic masculinity, self-obsession, celebrity worship, nihilism, and conspiracy fixation, all while directly telling an inquisitive audience the more you examine, the less meaning you will find. Nothing I have seen this year does more to exemplify our time in history than this tragically overlooked masterpiece. Wow. Well, I will say... If you've been on
0: the fence about Under the Silver Lake, and I liked it, but not as much as this, uh, that's a very convincing description. Also, another plug for The Next Picture Show, because when they broke that down, I appreciated it a lot more afterwards. Here's Sean. High Flying Bird by Steven Soderbergh is the best so far this year. Shot on an iPhone 8, this movie looks spectacular, plus the writing and
2: acting are second to none. Wonderful
0: movie pushes boundaries creatively and is just damn
2: satisfying. I'm definitely a fan of the Soderbergh. A few more here from listeners. John Newfree says, "My vote goes to the stunning documentary Apollo 11. Vivid cinematography, a tale more heroic than fiction, and some amazing. Wait, was that crowd reaction shots made for the most riveting experience I've had in the theater?" This year. Still need to catch up with that one.
0: Here's Shane Brashear. My vote is Rolling Thunder Review, a Bob Dylan story by Martin Scorsese. I think that's the full title. Dylan's been a chameleon, a charlatan, a medicine man, a shaman, a wizard, a deceiver, and a thief. And you see all these personas on display in this. All these Dylans weaving in and out of each other, ducking and weaving, and ducking and dodging. It's almost more of a mockumentary than a documentary. But regardless over whether or not you're sore about being bamboozled for two and a half hours, the music during this period of Dylan fervency makes the whole thing worth it. It's electric.
2: Shane is absolutely right there. We may hear a little bit more talk about Rolling Thunder Review a bit Later, Dan Carmody says Chernobyl over everything else, but in film, it's Booksmart followed by High Life and Her Smell. Jonathan Cassell says loved
0: Booksmart and Her Smell, but I've got to go with Other for Christian Petzold's Transit. Painfully evokes an omnipresent feeling of insecurity and effortlessly translate historical timeline
2: onto a modern setting. Alex goes to bat for Gloria Bell says... The movie flew so far under the radar this year that it's almost like it never came out, but it did, and it's a shame that more people aren't talking about it. Led by an especially impeccable Julianne Moore, with fantastic supporting performances by John Turturro, Michael Cera, Brad Garrett, and so many more, Gloria Bell's cast turns out to simply be the icing on the cake of a fantastic film. It doesn't cover that many new ideas—our fear of being alone, our desire to love and be loved, our apparent willingness to move on but internal inability to do so— and our ultimate ability to embrace independence. Yet it is the film's execution of such ideas that is stunning. Please watch this film. Everything from the writing to the camera work to the soundtrack and all in between are worthy of praise. Now, I will say, Alex, that I have not caught up with Gloria Bell yet, but remember really wanting to get there when it was in theaters. I think it was even at the Multiplex near me, Josh, never made it. And then now just noticed that it is over the past few weeks available on demand. So Gloria Bell is one I'm definitely going to fit in before the end of the year. One last note here from Thomas Kuzmarcus From the
0: choices provided, I picked Booksmart. However, the film that gave me the most cinematastic experience so far this year was Terry Gilliam's The Man Who Killed Don Quixote. To see a filmmaker finally fulfill his dream and to have that film be such a wonderful piece of work was amazing. For me,
2: the one to beat for 2019. That's another one that's now available on demand that I do hope to catch up with soon. I love hearing from listeners, love getting their great insights and getting their choices for best film of the year. But talk about spoiler alert. I think they probably took, between all of that feedback, they probably took every film the two of us are going to mention. Are you going to sneak in I something think, that didn't
0: come up? I think my number two hasn't come up yet. Okay.
2: Yeah. Unless well, unless I just uh, phased out there, which is always possible with one of those comments. Maybe so. We're going to get back into our countdown. You have heard our number five and number four picks. Josh, to recap, yours were? My number five was Diane, and my number four was High Life. My number five was High Life, and my number four was Jordan Peele's Us. What's your number three film of the year so far? I'm going to
0: follow the lead of a listener we just heard from, Sam Vargan, who chose The Last Black Man in San Francisco. I do have that at number 3. You know, I think if if some of the best movies bring a fresh lens to our familiar world. So look at something familiar in a different way. That's exactly what writer-star Jimmy Fails and the director Joe Talbot do here. We built these ships.
1: Drove these canals in the San Francisco they never knew existed. This is our home.
0: There's an unexpected fairy tale air to their story about a man who's displaced by gentrification from his childhood home in San Francisco to a forgotten neighborhood, one that's been cast aside, essentially. And then he does get this unlikely chance to return to that home and restore it. It gives, you know, real voice to the politics at play here, which are absolutely real and important. There's a direct address aesthetic in the manner of Spike Lee to the film. And I got to say, those politics feel especially pertinent after spending, you know, a couple of days in L.A. where the homelessness crisis, it was just evident in every neighborhood we visited, save, shockingly, of course, for, you know, Beverly Hills or something like that. Mm -hmm. But there are some... Folks really having a rough time in that city and San Francisco, obviously different with different challenges, but this movie does absolutely touch on that as well. Last Black Man in San Francisco, though, balances that anger with a surprising poeticism. And the more I've sat with the film, the more I've thought of my favorite movie of 2012, Beasts of the Southern Wild. I think I mentioned on the show where you talk to Fails and Talbot Adam that I saw a connection there, but that's really the one that's resonated with me. I just think both films share in admiration for the imagination and beauty of an outsider community, um, a community that has an eye for the beautiful amidst the muddy, amidst the broken, uh, and the forgotten. I think both movies also feature soulful, idiosyncratic music.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Last Black Man has this cover of San Francisco, Be Sure to Wear Flowers in Your Hair. It's written by the film's composer, Emile Mosseri, the director, Joe Talbot, and also Daniel Herskedal And it has these searing vocals by Mike Marshall. It has this throbbing tuba. I had to listen to that while I wrote my review. I don't always Hmm. do that. I know it's practice for some people, but every once in a while you get uh, a piece of music that so captures the essence of a film that it's helpful to have that going on while you're writing about that. So I just wanted to be back in that unique world. That cover absolutely put me there. Last Black Man in San Francisco, I know is working its way through a few select theaters. Still, a few folks at the LA meetup had just seen it. So Hmm. if you have a chance to experience this in a theater you should definitely go for
2: it. Yeah, strongly recommended. You're so right about the score and the soundtrack overall. I think we hear Joni Mitchell on it. It's just a great eclectic collection of music. My number three is one that came up in our listener feedback, and it's the beautiful Enigma Transit from director Christian Petzold. It stars Franz Rogowski as Georg, who is fleeing Paris, trying to get to Marseille, and then ultimately out of France altogether. I think the goal eventually, maybe the only option, is to get to Mexico. And really, for him, the only way it's remotely a possibility is because he's been confused, I think, initially for, and then decides to embrace that mistaken identity, a famous writer whose documents he actually is holding on to. It's based on a 1942 novel that was actually published in 1944, and the movie would seem to almost be set in 1942 or 44 in that the technology is mostly appropriate. The radios and the typewriters we see, and there's certainly no smartphones to be found. And then there are other aspects of it that are, of course, decidedly modern. There's even a Dawn of the Dead reference in it. And that Romero film came out in 78. You have characters fleeing what is suggested to be Nazi-occupied France. So again, seems very much right out of World War II. And the black market activity and the love triangle feels straight out of Casablanca. And also the whole movie has a Hitchcock feel to it while also evoking the dystopian despair of Orwell and the tedium of Kafka. And yet it feels wholly unique at the same time. As we touched on during our review, Josh, it's a movie that is bound by history and completely breaks from it at the same time. And I think that matches the uneasiness of these characters that we meet not just georg but a woman he comes across and falls for and the man that she is in love with these characters are always in motion fleeing towards an uncertain future or they're stuck in a purgatory this purgatory present and the whole time they're there they're reflecting on their haunted past so it just all swirls together and it's very easy as we talk about movies throughout this list for both of us that demand questioning and thought as to what the filmmakers really are trying to say this is a movie that easily could be seen just as a movie about fascism and about refugees that of course is timely right now you during our conversation drew the comparison to our current immigration crisis talking about raids and deportations we see that in the film and of course it was originally a holocaust based story i really think the wonder of the movie is that it can be any one of those and all of those things at once while also being this really lovely poetic meditation on loneliness and also on desire.
0: Yeah. You talk about the beginning where you're not quite sure about time and place. And that is the the sense of displacement and dislocation mm-hmm. that we have there in those openings. I don't think I'll forget feeling that way watching this movie because uh, other films might be worried about taking that risk and putting the viewer off. Um, But it's so essential to really what the entire film is about. So yeah, really bold piece of work.
2: Yeah. Out now on iTunes and Blu-ray.
0: My number two. Okay. This one I don't think did come up in the poll. Listener hasn't mentioned it yet. And it's The Souvenir. I want to start with how sneakily gorgeous This movie is, because it has a fairly mundane setting and a quietly difficult story, essentially about a young film student in England who becomes romantically entangled with a problematic older man.
1: You came closer to me and took up more of the bed. And you're already, I would say, further over than I am. That's not true. It is true. No, it's not. I haven't got you that have much room. You have bed dysmorphia. <laughs> and you, then you accuse me of, I wasn't trying to cross any sort of threshold. I have not got that much room. You've got a foot on that side. That's And I a literally am on a ledge.
0: But the writer-director here, Joanna Hogg, Drawing from her own experiences, she lends it this gothic gloom so that there's a growing shadow over the film that just gets longer and deeper as it goes on. The title of the movie is taken from a Jean-Honoré Fragonard painting. Uh, which shows this young woman who's carving her lover's initials on a tree in this darkening forest. Mm-hmm. And there are moments in the souvenir, especially during this segment where they take a romantic trip to Venice, when Julia, the film student, is lit to physically resemble the woman in that canvas. And the cinematographer here is David Ray Decker. The movie also doesn't just look gorgeous, but is also anchored by two grand lead performances, I think. You have Honor Swinton Byrne as Julia, a, a relative newcomer, also Tilda Swinton's daughter, and Tilda Swinton shows up here playing her mother. She just gives a very brave performance in that it's true to Julie's bad decisions, which are really difficult to watch, but it also shows that she's a woman of quiet strength, too, so she gives us all of that in this performance. Tom Burke is... Maddeningly good as her suitor Antony. I mean, the first Maddening's time the right word. You see this guy; alarm bells are going off, right? <laughs> For sure. But he's still mesmerizing, and I I think even sympathetic. Eventually, in some ways, in, in some, some ways. ways not. You know, I I mentioned we saw Hitchcock's Rebecca while we were out in L.A., and the souvenir has some real gaslighting qualities For to sure. the central relationship that is also at work between Lawrence Olivier and Joan Fontaine there. So. This is a very personal, incredibly well-acted, and it just also sneaks up on you, I think, in terms of its stunning visuals, not just the lighting, but some of the compositions. Mm -hmm. Definitely one to see.
2: We'll see where it lands at mm-hmm.
0: the end of the year for me, but yeah. right now it's pretty high up there. So
2: I actually did just catch up with this movie. Nice. Finally. Yeah, it's still in yeah, It is. And I came across a quote from David Edelstein because they recently did their best films of the year so far, the different Vulture critics. And the souvenir on the list, he wrote, at times the film seems too distant, but it's never obvious or banal. Hogg convinces you that incoherence is the only honest way to tell a story with any emotional complexity. Mm. And I think for me, my initial reaction to the film is that that's absolutely what Hogg is going for. It's a matter of whether or not you're fully convinced by that. And maybe I wasn't. Now, I'll be a bad critic or I'll be a truthful critic and confess that I've been bad. I think I had four drinks before I saw this movie. <laughs>
0: that's that's yeah, just that's a fact. Probably over my
2: That's <laughs> just a fact. And I probably should not have done that. But you know what? I agree with a lot of what you said about the film. Definitely do want to see this movie again before end of the year. The performances are really something stellar to watch. And I do think that getting back to that idea of incoherence where I completely do agree with Edelstein is in how fascinating it is to watch the movie begin one way thinking is going to be one type of film. It's going to be very much a movie about the making of a movie. It's going to be about this kind of personal yeah, it journey starts that way, right through this art project that she has and the story she wants to tell and the way the movie gets derailed the same way her life gets derailed exactly. by this man, Yeah, it's appropriate. Yeah, it's absolutely it appropriate.
0: Yeah, and I think the phrase you quoted said, e- emotional complexity mm-hmm. in Middle Scenes Review, I would say emotional honesty is, is kind of what Hogg is going for here, is just trying to capture partly what her own experience was like and only giving us that. You know, not worrying about any sort of value judgments on right. the choices that were made on either of their parts, but putting us right back there where Julie is Mm -hmm. in the film and you're right the way you're describing that he takes over the film takes over her life is accurate as well so it does set us up i don't think it's ever incoherent
2: but it definitely takes that well i mean incoherent might be a relative scale but there are parts of it that are definitely difficult to latch onto, and in some ways that's very thrilling and i would even go back to what you said about the lover character that we meet when we're first introduced to him, we have no idea who he is or why they're talking. In fact, there is maybe a little bit of distrust. You said warning bells are going off. Yeah. There's a little bit of distrust is right that away. In but that it's their room luncheon. But it's their luncheon. The lamps that are like, honestly, my above sense them. was he was some kind of advisor yes, or some kind of mentor. producer on the film. Yeah. There was never any sense that they were really. Lovers in that moment. And maybe in that moment, they aren't, maybe that's the first time they ever met. The movie doesn't try to explain any of that. No, it really true. doesn't care to.
0: Yeah, that's true, but and it that's does, fine. Yeah. And it does, but that's, it sets up their dynamic yes. perfectly because he, he is, he thinks of himself as her advisor. Yeah. And she does absolutely. This is what's good about the performance by honor Swinton Byrne is she also shows us at the same time that she doesn't need His advice at all as an artist, as a creative type, she is again. I'll use that word quiet, but you see in the scenes of her alone doing her work how fulfilled she is there, Hmm. and so it kind of carves out this this portrait of a young woman. We understand why she's drawn to him. We also see the alarm bells going off, and we also see why she doesn't really need to depend on him at all. It's, it's a really complex portrait of it a relationship.
2: Is. Yeah, there's no doubt about that, and a rewarding one on those grounds. You say fulfilled during those times. I remember that aspect of the film, but I also remember all the times, I use the word derailed, all the times we get back to her trying to work on the film, and she's kind of just scratching at the typewriter and really not at all going down the path that she started out on. It's as if this relationship has so upended her equilibrium that she's completely incapable of focusing. I feel
0: like there were moments where she's, again, the key is by herself, where she seems happily content in her work. Hmm. Those scenes where she gets derailed, are when she's bringing what she's working on to him. And he always, he's just so passive-aggressively demeaning about even the way he uses pauses in conversation. He doesn't say something demeaning. He just doesn't respond to something she's put out there Mm -hmm. to demean it. I mean, it's just, it's an insidious performance.
2: Yeah, it really is. All right, my number two film of the year so far is the documentary Apollo 11. It's the film about the first... Spaceflight, of course, to try to land people on the moon. The footage from 1969, this archival footage, has mostly been just sitting around and has not been released to the public and shot a lot of it in 70 millimeter. And the director, Todd Douglas Miller, decides to tell the story of this mission almost in real time, letting it just unfold without any interviews, without any narration. There's really just no talking heads used at all, or any desire to try to contextualize what we're seeing. We just get to experience it.
1: The whole Apollo program was designed to get two Americans to the lunar surface and back again to Earth safely. The enormity of this event is something that only history will be able to judge.
2: We got an email from Dave in Ridgewood, New Jersey. He wrote in right after I talked about this film briefly on the show, and he said, Did you notice certain camera setups in Apollo 11 that were replicated in other movies like The Right Stuff and Apollo 13? It makes me wonder if Howard and Kaufman had seen some of that footage or similar footage and copied it for their films. Examples, the dolly shot past all the rows of NASA engineers sitting in front of their computer terminals, or the shots of civilians watching the blast off from the beach. Which movie is it that has a shot like that and a guy watching the lift? saying go baby go i think dave's referring to fred ward in the right stuff or what about the audio recording of all the different departments announcing that they are go for liftoff it's now iconic it's funny to think that some anonymous cameraman developed a few setups that would then become the visual language for all future movies about spaceflight dave's right of course that we've seen this story before more or less many times and in terms of footage and technique This is a movie that arguably could have been made exactly the same way the year it was shot in 1969. And yet it does feel so vital because the director lets the urgency of the footage and this feat really speak for itself. The Ringer just this past week, Josh published an article that was their favorite scenes of the year so far. And they had a scene from. Apollo 11 that I was so glad to be reminded of because it's not one of the big set pieces of the film at all, but it really is this wonderful kind of atypical moment for the movie and a real bit of filmmaking ingenuity. The writer says, because there's no narrator, director Todd Douglas Miller has to show the audience how everyone must have felt at the time. Rather than tell, he deploys a simple but handy editing technique early in the film. With the three astronauts, Armstrong, Aldrin, and Michael Collins, in a contemplative state ahead of launch, the documentary deploys flash cut flashbacks to show their respective journeys and what they're leaving behind. Moments like Aldrin in a fighter jet or Armstrong's LLRV crash and scenes of Armstrong with his young daughter, who died from cancer at age two, quickly hit the screen. Obviously, some liberties are taken. We don't know that Neil Armstrong was thinking of these things at the time, but the montage emphasizes the gravity of the situation and the unprecedented stakes these men were facing. The calculations for the moon landing were done with pencil and paper, for God's sake. Certainly, I talked about this when I brought up this movie a few months ago. That sense of accomplishment of all of these people having to do these absurdly complicated jobs perfectly in order to pull this off really is something you never lose sight of watching the film, but... I didn't even think about it at the time, that moment that The Ringer talks about in any way suggesting what the astronauts were thinking in that moment. And it goes by so quickly. But really, as a viewer, I was recognizing that there is one limitation, even early in the film, one limitation of this chosen approach, not having narration or any interviews, is not being able to fully contextualize who these men are inside Apollo 11, not just As astronauts or professionals but who they are as men nobody's there of course to tell us what buzz aldrin was really like or what neil armstrong was really like but their actions and their personalities all come through in the communication we hear throughout the movie i do think it's all we need but i think that's partly because of this early flash cut montage it goes by like i said in just a flicker and yet it takes them out of these suits it takes them away from this crucible of landing on the moon, and it just shows us a glimpse of their humanity, which sets up the whole film as this example of humanity at its finest.
0: Well, it's a good use of the myth that already exists as yeah. well, right? What what you're talking about, these other movies that we've seen about space flight and even something as recent as First Man, most of us have, we're bringing that to something mm-hmm. like this.
2: So a technique as subtle and quick it can be effective because it's drawing on all Yeah, that, it really probably. is powerful as the whole film is. And you can see it, I think, still in some select theaters. It was mostly showing on IMAX screens. Obviously, the way to see it, if you can, it will blow you away, but it is also streaming on some digital platforms right now. All right, at number one,
0: number right one now, I've got a film that's already made it to your list. It is Us, and you touched on this a bit. One of uh, the listeners in the poll comments talked about their experience discussing this film afterwards, and I just think. There's probably not a more exciting filmmaker working right now than Jordan Peele. That doesn't mean he's the best. Uh, It doesn't even mean that Get Out or Us are among the very best films we've gotten in the last few years. Maybe Get Out might be. I guess you might be able to make that argument. He's just doing stuff that has made going to the movies, wrestling with them, debating them afterwards, a uniquely thrilling prospect. I mean, think about how much our brains were tingling when we got out of the theater, had to come straight to the studio and do that review there's nothing like that experience when a movie gives you that and i think us is maybe especially exciting in that way because there hasn't been quite as much consensus about it either you know on what it means but also on how successful it is in communicating what it's trying to do i do land on the fact that it's this prophetic horror fable about the vengeful rise of the have-nots so I do see it, like Get Out, in a lot of ways, as socially conscious horror. But with that double shadow family, I absolutely see your reading, too, and the psychology that's at work mm-hmm. here. You know, it's just Peel's terror is visceral, but it's also psychological at the same time. So this is, uh, it's identity dismembering in all the ways you could think about that phrase. That's what this movie is doing. And you talked about it. But Lupita Nyong'o has to be mentioned as one of the, if not the main reason this movie ultimately works. Well, and I said performance, but it's performance as. It's double performance yeah. and both are so good and they're so good together in what they add up to. She's just stunning as this, a shaken affluent American who looks in the mirror and sees this broken ballerina that's coming to kill her. And putting all of Hmm. that together at the same time is an incredible feat that uh, I just haven't seen even in other double performances that we've gotten. So again, back to what I said at the top, I don't know where else is going to be on my top 10 list at the end of this year. Pretty positive Nyong'o's performance is going to be among my yeah. top five female lead performances. That I can guarantee. And as you mentioned, Us is now streaming and on DVD. I can't imagine anyone listening hasn't seen it. Right. But if you've held out for whatever reason, you got to get to it.
2: Well, you rightfully, I think, use the word affluent there to describe her. But I think one of the keys of the film is the layers to that. That I don't actually see that family as what you would describe as conventionally affluent. It's the fact that they are, though... Striving for that kind of affluence in some ways, Compared like you can to their see them, friends, uh, right? For sure, Tim Heidecker yeah. and Elizabeth yeah. Moss—they are definitely not as affluent as them, right? But boy, they want the boat, or at least yes. the husband wants yeah. the boat, just yeah. like him, and can't quite pull that off.
0: And there, and what makes it more difficult for them is they're on the same lake, they've got a boat. That's they it. don't just quite have what right. the others do, and that's the heart of it, right? That's it. The the lack, the inability to to be content,
2: right? I mean, that's consumer capitalism. At its core, right? Well, speaking of Elizabeth Moss, my number one film of the year so far is the movie I said was my number one film of the year so far back when it came out. I think it was April. It remains so. Her Smell, directed by Alex Ross Perry, the writer-director behind Listen Up, Philip and The Color Wheel and Queen of Earth. He's working again with Elizabeth Moss as Becky something, this tornado of Emotion and volatility, who was a punk rock star. She started her own all female trio back in the 90s and is now on the downside of her career, certainly struggling professionally at this point, no longer selling out bigger venues. No one really wants to listen to her next album and she's also struggling personally. She has a young child. She has an ex played by Dan Stevens, and we meet all of those characters along with her bandmates right from the opening scene. I was thinking about how Elizabeth Moss here, and really even before this, has to be in the conversation for most interesting actresses, and really just most interesting actors, period, who are working today, right? But then- As I was thinking, well, who might then I put above her? And the only name that popped into my head was Michelle Williams. And then I started thinking about what her smell would be like with Michelle Williams as Becky something. And the reality is she could absolutely nail it, too, because she's Michelle Williams and she's infallible. But has she been a tornado? Maybe I'm missing something. She could do it. Don't oh, we get? I'm, I'm sure she could. I mean, do she's it. capable of anything. But yeah. don't you think that even in a movie like Blue Valentine, and to some extent in Brokeback Mountain, in certain scenes, we get yeah, that yeah. volatility? Yeah. I mean, she can. Just she can let it go. How different it would be. Totally. Yeah. That said, I'm really happy with the film we got and the performance we get from Elizabeth Moss. It's one we both compared very favorably to Jen Rollins. We were mm-hmm. in the midst of our Cassavetti's marathon, or maybe it just wrapped that up at the time. And definitely there are shades of a woman under the influence here. There's also a scene from this movie on the ringer list of scenes of the year so far. I'm going to avoid it though, just as I did deliberately during our review, because it's a virtual lock for music moment of the year. Mm. So I'll save that for our rap party in January, but everybody who's seen this movie definitely knows what moment I'm talking about. We heard a listener, Adam Graff, in our poll feedback, say something I thought is dead on. The first half of the movie feeling like an assault, but by the end credits he realized the assault was completely necessary. I said during our review that I felt like it was a movie I was ready to watch again right away despite how torturous it is to spend a moment with Becky, at least in that first half of the film. This combination Perry uses of close-ups and long takes just never really allow you to get a reprieve from her. You'll literally go with another character into another room and think maybe you've gotten a break and then the tornado just comes around the corner. She chases you.
1: Hey! You're actually suing me, right? Or is that somebody else? I'm suing i They'll see you in court. Judge! Your Honor! Mm-hmm. Is it a crime in this country? To prefer the witching hour? I was born with an internal clock. A doctor left it inside me.
2: <laughs> and I Perry, up. I think it was an IndieWire interview, or maybe another one. He said the fact that she is simply too much became the driving principle behind every scene I wrote. And you definitely get that sense, but I think what really makes this movie stand out is Perry's ability to capture that excess so unflinchingly, but still allow for vulnerability and some delicacy even. I mean, that's really the trick of the movie, and it really comes through mostly in that second half, and even in that second half, where she's a much calmer, more rational human being one who also we should say isn't high on drugs at the time this is a movie that we could spend our entire time discussing it just focusing on its portrait of addiction sure right it's that kind of movie too but we see the shades of the old becky of course still inside her like when her friend more on her in a second comes to visit and i couldn't find this exact scene but in the dialogue i remember very vividly how the friend brings up something about a new recording or music she might be working on and becky tries to act like she doesn't care If anybody is asking if she's working on anything, but then she says something to completely betray the fact Mm -hmm. that of course she does. She really wants people to want something more from her. And then she tries to dismiss that quickly. Now I mentioned Dan Stevens and I mentioned the friend, a little bit of a mea culpa on her smell and our review of it. We got an email right after that show came out from Mary McEnroy in Iowa City, who said, As a Dan Stevens fan in particular, I was eagerly awaiting the release of Her Smell. I realized it would be a standout vehicle for Elizabeth Moss, but remain interested in how Stevens is doing with his movie career, embarked on after he abruptly left surefire fame maker Downton Abbey. I listened to the review of Her Smell from Josh and Adam and heard nary a bit about any other performance except Moss's. Is hers that much of a commanding role that all others fade into the woodwork? Could be, I guess... Having not seen it, I can't say one way or the other, but I would have liked a line or two on someone else's performance in the movie. I guess I'll need to wait until it comes to Iowa City and judge for myself, and that's probably the best way to find out how Stevens and the rest fared. Anyway, you could definitely make the case that her performance is so domineering and commanding that that's the case, but it's not the case here with this movie, and actually I did apologize to Mary. I said, sometimes on the show we definitely are guilty of not giving love to things that don't really fit into the larger discussion or some of the points we're trying to make or sometimes at least in my case i'll speak only for myself and say if i have nothing else to say besides they were really good (laughs) then that might just get overlooked over the course of our review but guess what dan stevens is really good in the movie and also really good is agnes dane whose name i probably mispronounced even though at one point i think i learned how to say it properly she's the friend And Bandmate, who comes to visit her in the scene I talked about, who we saw as the lead in Terrence Davies' Sunset Song back in 2015, a movie I think I liked a little bit more than you. But I loved that performance, and that was her, didn't even recognize her in this film. Going back to the topic that set up this list, this idea of movies that demand some scrutiny, well, we devoted a lot of time in a spoiler section of our review to that ending, And a performance that we get, and whether or not those final moments are hopeful or are they cynical? Are they honest? Are they all of those things? The movie was great before that for me, and it just got even better with the way it all comes together.
0: Yeah, we've, I think we've agreed on movies for the most part this year, but we've disagreed on their endings. Yeah, that's true, completely. So
2: I don't know what's going
0: on there, but Her Smell and Elizabeth Moss, I mean, pretty sure she'll be at
2: my list of best performances of the year at the end of the year as well. If you want to see that amazing, towering performance, the movie is out on Blu-ray and on various digital platforms. Those are our top five movies of the year so far. If you missed any of those picks or just want to refresh your memories on the movies we talked about, just go to filmspotting.net and click on Lists at the top of the page. You will find not only this top five list, but all previous top five lists. We both mentioned that we had... A little collection of films, Josh, that we were considering for this top five. Which ones then are just on the outside as honorable mentions?
0: Yeah, rounding out my tentative top ten right now is Booksmart at number six. I do have Her Smell at seven. Beyoncé's Homecoming is there at eight. Avengers Endgame, pretty good. One of my favorite MCU films, so I've got it at nine. And then number ten is Our Time Machine. This is, talked about it briefly on the show, a
2: documentary about a Chinese artist whose father is suffering from Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. I had a chance to start that movie one Saturday afternoon recently and family time beckoned and I didn't get a chance to return to it One I definitely want to see. I had a hard enough time ranking these five. I didn't rank my honorable mentions, but two of the three have already come up. The Last Black Man in San Francisco was on your list. Toy Story 4, I definitely thought about and a listener mentioned it. The Rolling Thunder Review, a Bob Dylan story by Martin Scorsese. That's the movie I probably would have at number eight right now, which you can see currently on Netflix. And I'm not yet sure what I make exactly of this mix of reality and, I suppose, fantasy, which I didn't even cue on at all until about three quarters of the way through the movie when an actor appears on screen playing a character from another movie that's not oh, even a wow. Martin Scorsese movie. Huh. And when that happens, then you go, oh, okay, Scorsese's up to some funny stuff here. And those shenanigans make sense with this guy who was always kind of both the, the fool and philosopher and court jester, right, of music, of rock and roll, Bob Dylan. So I don't begrudge it, even if I'm not completely sure what to make of the fakery that we get. What I do know, and the listener said this. And I'm not even someone who considers himself a huge Bob Dylan fan, but the performances that are captured here during this Rolling Thunder review, this time in the mid 70s, when Dylan just set out with a bunch of different artists, they kind of joined him on the tour, he was literally driving the RV, and they would just show up in different towns and kind of put a show on wherever they could put a show on definitely smaller venues, not arenas, and by all accounts, not a commercial success at all. but artistically absolutely one. I've never heard Dylan more engaged. I've never seen him more engaged during performances. Mm -hmm. He is taking a lot of his old songs, some of the quote unquote protest songs, the folk songs and reimagining them with this band, an incredible band of musicians. And because of the whole setup of this review, they're all kind of playing characters in some of the performances. You can see him wearing a mask, literally in other ones. Most of them we see he's actually wearing white makeup and one of the jokes, one of the things I found out later is absolutely made up is that he was inspired to do that by being taken to a KISS concert and seeing Gene Simmons as the demon in his white makeup. But you know what? He looks possessed, just like a demon in that white makeup during every single moment of these performances, and it's riveting. If you're someone who's ever said, Bob Dylan's not a great rock singer, forget just the songwriting and the music itself. If you've ever thought he's not a great singer watch Rolling Thunder Review, and you will have your mind blown. Those are, again, our top five films and beyond of the year so far. We would love to hear more of your picks or any other comments about the show. You can email us, feedback at filmspotting.net.
0: If you want to head over to the show archives, you can find reviews, interviews, and top fives going back to 2005. You can find all that at filmspotting.net. If you want to order a Film spotting t-shirt, Danny was sporting a very fine one. At the LA Film Spotting Meetup, gray. That's the same one I have. Those ah, the gray. Yeah, okay. My preference. You can find that and other Film Spotting merch at filmspotting.net/shop. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter. Adam is at Film Spotting. I'm at Larson on Film. To subscribe to the
2: weekly Film Spotting newsletter, just go to filmspotting.net/newsletter. Out in limited release this weekend. Opening here in Chicago. One of the movies, one of our listeners said, was the very best of the year so far, Wild Rose, about a young Scottish singer who dreams of making it as a country artist in Nashville after being released from prison. It stars Jesse Buckley, who you can currently see in Chernobyl. Out in wide release, Annabelle Comes Home, and Danny Boyle's latest, which takes the crown for the movie, the most people in my life who I don't normally talk about film with Mm -hmm. have asked me if I've seen it yet, and profess how much they can't wait to see it. That sounds like a hit. People are pumped to see Yesterday, the film about the guy who wakes up from a nasty spill on a bike and is the only person in the world who's ever heard of the Beatles, and then writes all of their songs and becomes a big star. We're Danny Boyle fans on the show. Yeah. A two-time guest here on Film Spotting, a show that was named after his breakout film, Train Spotting. So I am curious, of course, a huge Beatles fan, so, I am going to see yesterday, but you're not going to hear us talk about it, at least not anytime soon. Guys, we think we deserve a break. Josh just got back from vacation it and we're taking me. a break. Yeah, he's really <laughs> tired. We're going to take two weeks off here over July 4th. That doesn't mean there won't still be programming, both on the radio and our podcast. We will curate some past reviews or top fives or interviews for a couple film spotting revisited episodes. You never know, they might just be new to you. We'll be back on Friday, the 19th of July. That's when I'm going on vacation though. Josh is gonna be here and I love how you replace me with two amazing critics. Yeah. Is that is that your payback for having super fan of Toy Story Griffin on? Pretty much. You go Tasha Robinson and Angelica Jade Bastien. Yes. And we might
0: review Midsummer. We might review The Farewell. We might do both. Definitely what we're gonna do is watch whatever you log on Letterboxd (laughs) and just rip it apart. I think that's only fair. I think that's only fair. <laughs> Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dessault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Andy Mitchell. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson.
2: And I'm Adam Kempenar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad-free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's filmspottingfamily.com.